You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. And now we're going to continue. Uh, in our study of the Psalms. And so I'm going to invite Meredith to come on up and read for us. We are in Psalm 51 this morning. Um, and so you can turn there with me. If you'd stand with me as we read the word together. Um, and Pastor Dane's going to be walking us through again. Really excited for where he's going to take us. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab that Bible from the seat back right in front of you um, and follow along. It's always good to, to read and see with your own eyes uh, what's, what's what we're reading. Oh, you're here. I, was, I thought I was buying time. I didn't know where you Thank you. So I'm reading Psalm 51 from the ESV. Create in me a clean heart, O God, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dane. I'm the middle school pastor here at Crossroads Church. Uh, and actually, before we get into our, our study, I, I have a middle school story to tell you, an opportunity uh, that I want to share with you about. Uh, well, actually, I'll back up and just say thank you to all of those uh, of, of you who donated um, or uh, even just through the, the fundraising, you, you, you came to our random little fundraiser booths that we, we did throughout the year. Um, to try to pay for some of our summer camps and uh, specifically the weekend, which was last weekend. And it's an event we call the weekend. It's super confusing, I know. But <clears throat> it's this awesome event where we get to do ministry. It's like a, a, a local mission trip that we do with the middle school students. 
every year, and it's, it's a blast. It's awesome. We get to go up to the Nevada County Fairgrounds and do uh, evangelism there with the, the students, and then we, we get to go uh, do some practical work just to, to bless and minister to the widows in our community. Um, and we do a whole bunch of fun stuff and Bible studies, and it's just a great event. Uh, and some of the junior hires I actually see in the room, they're like, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, because it is. It's a great, great thing. And so thank you for, for those of you who contributed to that and made that happen, uh, especially my staff, those that are in here. You guys are the best. Um, so the next day, the very next day, uh, Monday, was the day before um, school started for Magnolia Middle School, which is the, the big middle school just down the road from us here. And uh, I got to go there on, on Monday to meet with the new principal. They have a new principal this year uh, to discuss with him uh, a mentorship program that, that started uh, at Magnolia last year. And it started up at the very, very end of last year. It only ran for a few months. Uh, we only met with about three students. Uh, and actually, this, this started uh, before 2020. Uh, Andrew uh, actually caught this awesome opportunity with the, the previous um, principal. Uh, and and it, we, we planned this mentorship thing. We got 12 volunteers from Crossroads Church to, to start meeting with students. Uh, and we were set to launch and it was like the week that we set to launch was the week that the shutdowns happened in 2020. And so the program was just right out of the gate, just dead. Uh, and, and nothing happened with it. Fast forward like a, a year and a half or so. Um, and the, the schools around here have been, uh, and really all, all around the nation, uh, specifically in, in California, but even here, uh, there's a major need for uh, teachers, substitute teachers. And... Uh, it, was, it was during a time where they were so low on teachers that they actually had to close the school for several days uh, because they just didn't have teachers to fill the, the classes or, or subs to cover. Uh, and so at that point, I learned that uh, the governor had signed some executive order uh, making it easier for people to become substitute teachers, which there's not a lot of, you know people in the world that are that kind and, and gracious that would <laughs> go go throw themselves into the lion's den of these middle school students uh, to, to meet with them and, and try to teach them something. Uh, and I was like, what in the world am I doing? Okay, I'll go do that. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I, I, was, I was able to do that. And so I went and I talked to the principal. I was like, hey, I heard, you know, you don't need a teaching credential. You just need a degree and basically can pass a background test and got decent grades in school. And and they'll take you. So I was like, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and he said, well, that's great. But what I'd really like is for you to get that mentorship program up and running because we got a lot of students with a, a lot of heavy things going on. And I was like, awesome, let's do it. And he's like, even if it's just a couple of you. So we only had three of us to start. We only met with three students um, at the end of last year. Uh, and it was such a blessing to be able to go and meet with them and encourage them in that way. So new principal this year, and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe this thing's going to get shut down. So I went in with, and met with him and, and the school counselor, and we talked about what we were doing. And he said, this is amazing. You need to keep doing this. Uh, and, and then I, I spoke to the school counselor who said, hey, uh, actually, I, I, was, I, I do the counseling over at Arete, which is a, a, a homeschool charter program that's just down the road from us here. Uh, it what was Sierra Montessori, and, and it, before that it was Pleasant Ridge, uh, which is my old stomping grounds. My, my siblings and I went there. Uh, and she said, I actually counsel there, and I told them that we did this mentorship program, and the, and the principal there was like, hey, can we, can we get mentors here too? And I was like, 
were you for real? Like, do you know how awesome this is? This is such a cool opportunity. The, the first time uh, it, the, the first time that I, I went to Magnolia to see if I could get on campus uh, just to do anything, they were like, no. <laughs> no, you're, you're from a religious establishment. You're not coming in here. Sorry. Okay. And then the next time I asked with the next principal, and they were like, well, you could be a yard duty. We'll take you as a yard duty. Just make sure you don't talk to any kids. And they literally, they watched me like a hawk. Um, <clears throat> like, don't talk to these kids about Jesus. And, and then that, that transitions. I mean, doing ministry with Andrew sometimes is like cheating, right? He, he walks in and God just opens the door. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you're, you're going to do a mentorship program here. Now the principal is, is asking us, and several principals from the area are saying, please send as many Christians as you can to come to our campus and talk to these students and encourage them. That's awesome. Super awesome. Uh, it's so cool. But it, it's because, you know, the world is waking up to the brokenness and pain and, and sin uh, and selfishness that is this world's MO. It's humanity's MO. Um, they, they see it. It's very obvious right now. And, and there's a lot of students hurting um, and, and there's, there's really no answer for that in the education system. There's no answer for it anywhere in the world uh, except in Jesus. And so my uh, question for you is, is will you join us um, to, to make this happen? If, if you'd like to get more info about the mentorship program, um, if you would like to say, hey, I know that the, our, our education system is, has largely been like keep the church out, but this is them inviting the church in, um, I want to be a part of that. If you'd like to be a part of that, please come talk to me after the service or, or email me and I'll send you all the information that you need uh, to try to join uh, and be one of the mentors. I actually, uh, I got uh, at least four from first service. They were like, we are, we want to, we're in, let's do it. Uh, and I would love to bring back to that, to the school counselor and say, not only do we want to meet with all of the students we can here at Magnolia, but let's start meeting over at Arete too and maybe even Bear River. And we'll go up the hill and down the hill and everywhere, like anywhere will you will let us come in and, and, and just try to encourage these students, um, many of whom have, have nobody that they can really talk to that, that is a positive role model in the life um, or, or just constantly people that are, that are berating them or, or talking about the things that they're doing wrong. Um, if we can uh, step into the gap there and step up to the plate, I sure hope it's the Christians uh, that will step into that, that role. So anyway, come talk to me or email me uh, after the service, and we'll, we'll jump on that as fast as we can. And I know that has very little to do with our service this morning, but that's immediate, immediate need. We're starting that up in, in two weeks uh, So with whoever we've got. So if, if you'll join us, please join us. Okay, back to Psalm 51. Uh, I did not know this was the psalm that I, I was going to teach when I agreed to teach for Andrew. Uh, it means that I, I got to teach uh, Psalm 23 uh, and now Psalm 51, two of the most famous psalms in the Bible, uh, so no pressure. You know, more ink has been spilled over either of these psalms uh, than I could hope to read in my lifetime. Uh, and so what is, what is there really more than, than I can say uh, about these? Psalm 23, it's famous for its analogy of the shepherd and the sheep, while Psalm 51 is infamous uh, for its content as it relates to David's greatest sin and failure as a man and as a king. 
So the story surrounding this psalm is well known. If, if you don't know it, uh, I'm going to summarize it for us briefly just to start. You can read the full story if you like in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You could turn there and, and skim it if you like while I, I go through the summary, but I'm just going to summarize it. It says that the story starts out um, at a time when kings went out to battle with their armies, but it says that David stayed back home in Jerusalem. And David, at this point, he's in his mid-40s, uh, and, and he's about to have the biggest midlife crisis you can imagine. A large portion of the men were out fighting. David himself should have been out fighting. Uh, but instead, he finds himself on his palace rooftop, and he's looking over uh, the other rooftops. And on one of them, he, he finds a beautiful woman bathing named Bathsheba. And we can, we can imagine, you know, that the process that David went through here uh, with an initial glance, perhaps shock, um, and that turned into a long stare, which turned into uh, a lustful intent and a plan to have this woman for himself. And so he inquires about the woman, and someone speaks up telling David that this is Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite a faithful officer under your command. He's actually listed as one of the mighty men of David in the scripture. He's currently fighting a war for you. And she is also the daughter of Eliam, which doesn't tell us too much except that that makes her the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And if we know how that story goes, um, he was one of David's most trusted advisors and friends, and it's likely that after this whole mess, Ahithophel leaves David and returns to his home in Gilo, and he only returns back to the stage when David's son Absalom rises up against David to take the throne, and Ahithophel joins Absalom in the rebellion against King David. So this worked out great for David. There are no long-term consequences of sin. This only affects me in the moment. And those are the lies we tell ourselves. But someone tells David who this is. It doesn't deter David. And he commands her uh, to be brought to his bedchamber. And since he's king, there's no one putting up a fight or calling him on this. So he has sex with her and sends her away. It's a one-night stand. And then she sends word shortly after to, to David saying she's with child, his child. And David panics. He tries to cover it up. Uh, first by bringing Uriah the Hittite away from the front lines and back to Jerusalem where he wines and dines him in an effort to get him comfortable and drunk enough to go back home to his wife where they could then fabricate a story and you know fib on the due date and claim an early birth and no one would need to be the wiser. So David thinks he can get away with this. But Uriah proves to be a man of more honor than most. He refuses to go home to the comforts of his wife while his brothers in arms are out dying uh, facing the axes and spears. He says, I can't go home to my comfy you know, bed and, and, and my beautiful wife while this thing is happening. So he declines and, and stays with the servants of David. So plan A doesn't work, so David resorts to plan B, which is a pretty radical plan. He sends Uriah to the front lines again, but sends him with orders in his hands to be delivered to Joab, the general of the army, to make Uriah go to the front line where the battle's expected to be the most intense, to press forward close to the walls, which everybody knows. Why in the world would you go close to the walls? That's where you go to die. And then to retreat, leaving Uriah open in the battle um, to, to perish. And not only does that plan work and Uriah dies, but so do also um, other soldiers 
in David's army. All so David could attempt to cover up his sin. And well, we don't know exactly what went through David's mind at this point. I'd like to think that he was at least to some degree sorry for what had happened. Uh, if I give him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps he thought, you know, well, that was a bad business. Uh, what a fool I've been. I wish I'd never um, been caught up in the matter. Uriah was a good man. The other soldiers were good men. Um, but, you know, there are other matters to attend to, matters of national import. And there are the grieving widow to comfort and, and bring in my, as my wife and further cover up the sordid tale. And yeah, this was ugly, but at least it's over now. And we can get on with the business of running a kingdom and taking care of my people, God's people after all. We don't know exactly what his response was, but we know he was in a very dark place, according to the other Psalms that, that mention this. And it's not until chapter 12 that God sends in Nathan the prophet. Now, a prophet is someone whom God speaks to, and then they deliver that message to God's people. And God had a message for David. And for whatever reason, it's, it, God didn't speak directly to David about this. Uh, and, and I find that interesting in that oh, it seems like through mu much of David's life, he has like that direct line of communication with God. But in this sin and there's this brokenness and um, no, no repentance yet in David's life, uh, God chooses to speak through another person. And so he speaks through Nathan the prophet, and he uses a story about a sheep and a shepherd. Hey, David, you know that Psalm 23, that beautiful psalm you wrote about me, the shepherd, and you as the sheep? Yeah, yeah. you, you know how you were, you were the shepherd whom I made king? Pretty cool story, yeah? Okay, well, you're going to get this, David. You're going you're to hear this story, and it's going to strike you. It's going to resonate with you. So he tells David a story about a rich man who had lots of sheep. But when his guests came in from out of town, he went and took another guy's sheep. Now that other guy only had one sheep whom he loved very much. He was a poor man, uh, and this sheep was a daughter to him. Not just a pet, but a, a member of his family who played with his kids and ate from his food and was a beloved member of the family, much like dogs in our culture um, tend to be. I sometimes wonder if my, my parents' dogs are more beloved than their actual children at times. <clears throat> and I'm totally kidding. I, I love you. Uh, and and uh, <clears throat> I'm totally kidding. Uh, except that they are rather obsessed with their dogs. And if you've ever seen that play out um, in, in one of your own relationships, you'll know uh, how a pet can become part of the family. And so this rich guy with lots of sheep goes and takes this poor man's sheep that's part of his heart, his soul, his family and takes it, he kills it, and feeds it to his friends who came in from out of town. And that's the story. Well, David hears the story and is rightfully enraged because it's a sad story of injustice. And David says, the guy who did this deserves to die, and he will pay back fourfold what he took, exactly what the law requires. The law says in, in Exodus 21, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So David say, let's do the law. In fact, let's do the law, and more than that, let's kill the guy. Because that's, that's messed up. And David's not wrong in his judgment. What he's really doing here is he's sealing his own fate with his own words. And because the next word's out of Nathan's mouth to David is, you are the man. 
God gave David a kingdom, the wives and concubines of Saul and others, and he would have given David more if he'd only asked. But instead, you took from someone who had only one wife, which is forbidden in the law, and it's punishable by death. And then you committed murder to cover it up, which is also forbidden in the law and punishable by death. And you went on your merry way like God didn't see or know or that he would not deal with it accordingly. David's sins were found out. And so, yeah, God spares David, but the child to be born would die. And much of his relationships would be broken. And horrible consequences of this sin would continue to play out for much of the rest of David's lifetime. What an encouraging story. Thank you, Dane. Let's all go home, right? And just dwell on how horrible we are. No, but this is the context. That story is the context that this psalm is written in. David writes this song in response to the confrontation of Nathan the prophet that he'd sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. And this is what sets David apart, in my opinion, from so many other kings who would come after him and the king that came before him. All who failed, we're told that all have fallen, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of them sinned in one way or another, whether we're told about it or not. But David's response to this sin is recorded for us forever in one of the psalms that he sings um, in worship to God. It's a plea to receive the gospel. David was searching for something that we have. David was looking to the future when God would do something to blot out his sins forever in an event that we on this side of time get to look back at and see that that took place with Jesus on the cross at Calvary. But the heart of David in these verses describes so perfectly a person who is saved by grace and a recipient of the gospel of grace. Well, I titled this morning's message an ode to brokenness because I want to draw our attention to the last part of it, um, which I believe really is the key um, that unlocks the rest of this psalm. And it's in verse 17. We'll come back and we'll read, we'll read all of it, but we'll start in verse 17 because David is saying <clears throat> that he's going to teach this thing after he's, he's thought through all of this. In verse 13, he says, this is something I'm going to teach. In verse 14, this is something I'm going to sing. In verse 15, this is something I will declare to sinners the ways of the Lord. What, is, what does he need to teach, sing, and declare? Well, it comes in, in verses 16 and 17 where he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what can we bring before God? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You must come broken or contrite. And a more New Testament sounding word would be repentant. In fact, the original Hebrew language uses this word. It it's actually comes from a, a word that's the concept of being crushed. So you could say that, uh, that you have to come with a broken and crushed heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The only other time you'll see this word contrite used in our English Old Testament is found in the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 57, 15 and 66, 2, where it says, For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. All of which are speaking of someone who has been crushed. They've been truly broken over their sin. This is the person who dwells in the high and holy place with God who will have his or her spirit revived. This is the person to whom God will look, someone who's humble, who's been crushed, who has repented of their sin, and someone who trembles at God's word. This is what God is looking for. That heart God will not despise or reject. And that's the attitude of David towards um, God and throughout this, this song. And so with that in mind, with the context now in mind, with the key in, uh, verse in mind, now let's go back up to the beginning and we'll read through uh, again with me. In verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, can you say those words? That, these, this is the cry of the Christian, this, this psalm is. But can you say these words if you've not been broken over your sin? And the answer is yes, sure, you can say it. But do you mean it? Um, maybe you know that kid or you've been that kid or you have a kid and it's that kid. Um, and, and you know that when, when this certain kid gets caught, caught red-handed, doing something they weren't supposed to do, they immediately go to the, I'm sorry, Mommy, I'm sorry, Daddy, I didn't mean to. It was an accident. I'll never do it again. Forgive me, forgive me, please don't punish me. And then what happens is, as soon as they're off the hook, as soon as they're out of the, the hot seat, they go back to their room and they shut the door, and then it's, Woo, yeah, wow, I had her convinced. I pulled the wool over his eyes. That was a close one, but I got away with it this time. In fact, I can't wait for him to leave so that I can do it again. Little demons. I don't know any kids like that. Uh, But what is an adult but just a grown-up kid who's become better at covering up their sin? So that the, the husband or wife or employer or friend or fill in the blank, when they call them on something, they just do the same thing, but now with greater duplicity. And there's no forgiveness for that. There's no mercy for that. God's not fooled. You can trick people around you, but God sees the heart. He knows what we've done, and he knows the remorse or lack thereof in a person's heart. He knows whether your soul cries out these verses with integrity or if they pay lip service. Well, the analogy David is using here and continues to use throughout the psalm is a call for a deep cleaning. It only comes from God's mercy and steadfast love. What else can wash away our iniquity? What else can cleanse us of our sin? There's nothing else. Yeah, there's plenty of religion out there that can teach you how to be a better person, how to have a better marriage, um, be a better parent or a better employer or employee or a neighbor or a friend. There's plenty of stuff out there. Um, any religion or self-help book or inspirational podcast can try to promise you some of those things. But only one person has the spiritual detergent, you could say, to wash out the stains that we have soiled our garments with. 
namely our sins. A Tide pen won't do it. A magic eraser won't help with this kind of stain. There's no one out there who can help you with it, who can remove the guilt, shame, sin, and stain of our transgressions against God except the God of the universe. That's the famous song we learned as children in Sunday school. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This concept of cleansing us from sin, it originates in the Garden of Eden when an animal died to cover the shame of of Adam and Eve. But the imagery gets even more vivid throughout the Old Testament scriptures as God literally bakes this idea um, into the everyday practices of his people and the religious practices of his priests. And the imagery continues throughout the Old Old Testament into the New Testament. You see it with baptism that we're going to celebrate. But the authors borrowed this ancient concept and our need of a thorough washing to be made clean from our sin. And the Bible ends those concepts on full display in Revelation 7, verse 14. Very vividly, he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the secret's out. The ingredient needed for a detergent that can truly wash away our sins, the sins of humanity, is the blood of the Lamb. And in order to have our garments cleaned, in order to be washed, you have to bring yourself to the person who can do that washing. And that's only Jesus. And this is going to require confession, which David does here. He calls it out in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David's saying, I know my transgressions. I know my sin is ever before me. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever out loud told God, or maybe admitted this to other people? I mean, think about it. David wrote a song about this to be sung at their next worship service. That must have been a little awkward. Right? Let me, let me sing a song about the worst thing I've ever done and how God has washed me from it. But David is admitting sin. He's confessing his corruption, saying, I've sinned and it's ever before me. It's like I can't escape it. I keep going back to it. I keep messing up. And my sin is against God. Yes, it was certainly against Bathsheba and Uriah. And its effects touched his family and the entire nation of Israel. But primarily, our sin is against the one who defines sin and declares judgment against it. David describes how pervasive it is, how all-encompassing and damning his sin condition is. It's not something that can be scraped off. It's not something like a virus that you can you know, just drink a little orange juice and eat some broth and kind of fight it off most of the time if you're young, if you're healthy, if you're strong enough. No, this has been in me since birth. I was brought forth, I was conceived in iniquity. This is a human condition and a problem for all humanity from birth. And this is no light thing. This is no problem that can be worked out or paid off by us. It cannot be ignored or downplayed. And in continuing with the analogy of cleansing and needing Jesus' blood to wash us, um, wash our sins away and to emphasize our need of confession to do that, 
uh, John writes this in his first letter to the church. This is how he starts it, really. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you understand that you are a sinner? That this is truth, this is the wisdom that God speaks to us, and in our heart we know this, we're being honest about this. That we failed God's law, his holy commandments. It must start there. There must be confession before there can be forgiveness. And the cleansing process takes place. So David's ready at this point. <clears throat> These are the statements of a man who's been broken. And brokenness is a strange concept that we see in Christianity. It's described as a virtue in Christianity. It's not in any, any other context. Not in, in our culture or our world. Our culture's all about strength and wholeness and pride and independence and achievement. But the famous teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, they're, they're referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. They remind us um, that God's kingdom, the, the kingdom of heaven, is a very different kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. Where the ones who are blessed, according to the Beatitudes, are those who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who come to God saying, I've got nothing. I'm broken. I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer you but rags and tears. I'm a sinful person, not worthy of your love and attention. These are those, Jesus says, are blessed because they will find the kingdom of heaven and they will be comforted there. Not those who approach God with a look at how worthy I am attitude. Look at how much I've got things together, how much I can offer. He's not impressed. We look at the parable of the prodigal son in, in Luke 15. That's a parable of, uh, of a picture of a contrast between two uh, brothers. There's the younger son, the disobedient son, and then the older, more reliable son, you could say. And the younger disobedient son, who is terrible to his father, basically calls his father dead to him, says, I want my inheritance now so I can go live how I want to. And he squanders that inheritance and <clears throat> he, he, he ruins it all with reckless living, and then he looks around at his situation, and he goes, I'm broken. And I'm not worthy of my father's love. I'm not worthy to be called one of my father's servants. But it'd be better to be with my father than it is where I am now. And so he returns to his father, <clears throat> and his father greets him with mercy and love. He blesses him way beyond what he deserved. And the older son that kept working and doing what he was supposed to do he gets upset by this. He says, well, I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do. And he, he complains. He doesn't like that the younger son's brought back into the fold. He complains and he keeps himself out from the father's presence. And we're actually not told how the older son's story plays out. Because he was left with a choice at the end of that parable. He could either enter and enjoy the party in, in the presence of his father... Or he could pout and keep himself from the presence of his father. The real problem was the older brother who didn't think he needed mercy. He believed he'd earned his inheritance, at least more than the worthless younger brother. 
And that's called entitlement. But the reality is, you and I are entitled to death and hell. Separation from God's love and mercy and presence. Everyone is. Everyone is. And you might say, well, well, they're entitled to it more than me, surely. And that's the dumbest thing we could focus on. Because it doesn't change the fact that you and I are entitled to judgment. This is not a story where there's an Egyptian scale of like your heart versus a magic feather. right? It's not a story of your good deeds versus your, your bad ones. You might think, well, I'm generally, I'm a pretty good person. Hey, that's great. But you're really, you're, you're not. You're broken. And if you're not broken, you don't view yourself as broken, you're, you're not getting in. If you don't see your great need for forgiveness, then you'll read through these verses and think, you know, well, I guess I sort of need that. I mean, a guy with a beard is telling me I do, so maybe he's right. Jesus had a beard. Okay, no, 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 right? Only Jesus holds the power to forgive me of my sins. Only he can make me clean. Please, God, please make me clean. Have you asked this of God? David continues this analogy of, of cleansing in verse seven. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be made clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And those verses have inspired several famous contemporary songs and hymns over the years because this is the cry of every Christian. You can't really be a Christian if you have not had this moment with God where you've recognized your brokenness, you've recognized and confessed your sins and your inability to fix it. God, you're the only one with a detergent that can make me clean. God, please create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And perhaps David was fearful of what happened to his predecessor, King Saul, when in verse 11 he cries out saying, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. King Saul's story is a tragic tale on numerous fronts, um, but chiefly that this was a man that, that God had chosen, uh, actually he, he chose him after telling his people, you don't want a king, I should be your king, you don't want a king, it's not going to go well for you. They're like, no, 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 we really want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. Okay, I'll give you a king. So he gives, gives them King Saul, uh, and it doesn't go well. Uh, at first it does. I mean, he, he fills Saul with his, his Holy Spirit, and Saul does some amazing things. He prophesies. He, he leads the people to many victories. Um, <clears throat> but uh, ultimately, it, it, it doesn't end well for Saul. Uh, Saul starts disobeying God, uh, and Saul's response was very different from David's when he was confronted with sin. You can actually read the majority of the story in uh, 1 Samuel 13 and 15. Uh, Saul does some things his own way, disregarding the laws of God in favor of doing what he believed was right at the time. Samuel the prophet confronts Saul, who is directly disobeying God's commandments and serving his own purposes. 
But instead of dealing with his sin in, in that way, he says, well, I'm going to offer animals as a sacrifice, not to atone for my sin, but actually as a justification for his disobedience. Saul makes excuses. He justifies his actions, and he doesn't admit guilt until chapter 15 when God takes the kingdom away from Saul, and then Saul reacts with some amount of contrition. The rest of Saul's story just proves how sorry he really was over his sin, but that, again, is a long and tragic tale we don't have time for. But this is the context where David meets Saul. After all of that has taken place, David finally meets King Saul, and he meets him because God took away his Holy Spirit from Saul, and a troubling spirit took the place um, in Saul's life. And uh, they actually hired David to come in and play a harp, to play music that would calm the troubling spirit within Saul. What in the world is that? And we could go down the rabbit trail on that for days and still not know what exactly it was, except to say David saw that how that played out in Saul's life, and he said, I don't want any part of that. Please, God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. He knew the presence of God's Holy Spirit in his life and the dire need he has for him. Please don't take him away. Do we have such a view of the Holy Spirit's presence and action in our lives that to have his removal would be a living hell compared to his presence? David understood this, and he was bent on teaching people about it. He learned from Saul and Samuel. He'd now learned from his own experiences. David was a sinner, but David loved God. Those things are both true. And in his love for God, David sought with his heart ways to live for God and please God, to worship God with all that he had. David did this. And part of it was learning from others and his own mistakes and to teach others so they didn't follow the same path. And when they did fail, they could take the path of contrition, of repentance, of turning from sin and turning towards God. And so David writes this song largely to teach people the lessons he's learned, which he describes for us in verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And pausing there just for a minute, I, I want to look at this idea that David's encouraging us with. David's being very open about his sin and brokenness. He's no longer trying to hide it, no longer trying to cover it up. He's doing this because he wants to teach others about God's ways, that God heals the brokenhearted, that he doesn't need to hide this event in his life, but he puts it on displays for other people to see the glory of God and his kindness and mercy and forgiveness, even in the most terrible of things. I was watching the videos of our, our uh, Christian sexuality workshop course that we've been announcing, and we're going to uh, be doing with you uh, in a few weeks. And, and one of the counselors who's interviewed in that speaks to the idea of sexual brokenness and uh, healing, some healing that comes about uh, just from talking about it with other people. And, and his encouragement is not to hide the scars of our brokenness. And he points to an example of someone who was also crushed um, and ended up with some scars. He, he mentions Jesus 
that the maker of our bodies, the maker of the entire universe, surely had the power to cover up the scars in his hand and his side if he'd wanted to. But he uses them to tell his story. And the stories of our own brokenness can actually help other people when we use them to point them to Jesus. Jesus allows the scars to show, and we need to be able to talk about some of our scars and the brokenness we've experienced. Don't eliminate the stories of brokenness or scars in our own lives. Rather, we need to see them as a place where the presence of God showed up. When we enter into the Good Friday stories of our lives, that's what they are. It's only then that we can really claim the resurrection stories in our life to those around us. And that is what the gospel is all about. And that leads us into kind of our, our key verses again. In verse 16, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, and burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> and again, what a contrast to Saul's own story. Uh, one of the things, the first thing that Saul was very guilty of um, was he actually offered a burnt offering sacrifice to God. You might be like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, he did that, and he was not allowed to do that. That was something only the priests were allowed to do. But he thought, like, oh, there's an army coming, and we need the answer now. We need God's blessing now, and I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so his sin was an offering a burnt sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. And then the second time, it was when God told Saul, you need to destroy all the people and the livestock of the Amalekites. You destroy it all. But instead, he kept some of them alive. And when Samuel the prophet shows up, and he looks around and he sees the king of the Amalekites there, and he sees all of the animals still hanging around, and Saul's like, like, I did it. And Samuel's like, no, you didn't. What, what are you doing? This was how Saul responded to Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 20, it says, Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And what he's saying there is he's saying, yeah, no, I I did. I did what I was supposed to do, at least mostly. And the things that we didn't do, well, we didn't do that so that we could sacrifice to God, so he'd be pleased with us. Well, Samuel's response, it becomes the favorite quote of many prophets who came after him, uh, including King Solomon, who writes about this in his his wisdom literature. And then Jesus also mentions it in at least two occasions. Uh, Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So David learned from that lesson. He's not about the sacrifices that, that he could, we could offer him. David could have offered a million bulls. Could have just 
slaughtered animals all day long if that's what God wanted. And he says, that's not what God wants. God doesn't need that. We often think about sacrifice in, in our Christian culture and, um, and we talk about sacrifice and worship of God. We, we like to talk around three things that we of, of, often have to offer as a sacrifice, um, them being our, our time, our talent, and our treasure. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, but when you really start to sit down and think about it, God doesn't need your time. He has an infinite amount of time. He's outside of time. That's like, that this, these are the concepts that make people that are much smarter than me, it still like hurts their brain. So like, what in the world am I trying to do thinking of that? He's infinite. He doesn't need our time. He also doesn't need our talent. He is more talented and powerful than any of us could dream to be. Any talent that we have was a gift from him anyway. And he doesn't need your treasure. Who do you think created the concept, let alone all the precious minerals that we've labeled as precious? And it describes his kingdom in, in heaven. He just paves the road with the stuff, and it's better than the stuff we have here. It's not like he needs it. He's lacking it. These are all good things, and we should give them happily to the Lord and worship to him. But he doesn't delight in those things as much as in someone who will come to God and obey God, to listen to what he has to say, and obey it. David is saying the real sacrifice, the best thing we could do to offer to God is a broken spirit and a repentant heart. When we sin, when we fail to obey, we admit it, and we come before him with our sin, knowing we can do nothing else. And he does not reject that. A bruised reed he won't break. He's kind and loving and merciful, infinitely greater than we are. Just like he has infinitely more time and talent and treasure than we do, he has infinitely more love and mercy and patience than we do. And he wants us to come to him. And after we come to him in humility, broken, seeking his healing touch, then the work of the cross is applied and he works with us. And he takes those offerings of worship that we give him, our time, our talent, our treasure. He's, he's pleased by those. He goes, I can use this. You, don't, you have no idea how I could even use this. It's going to blow your mind. But first he wants us coming to him broken. And like I, I admit, this is a very deep thing. And, and like I've said, we're only scratching the surface of, of these verses. More people with much more knowledge and wisdom than I have written books on these verses and will continue to do so long after today. But what I know I need to leave with is this that I need to be broken before God and I need to know what he's going to do with that brokenness. And our brokenness could be anything. Most of us in here haven't done what David did, hopefully. Um, so maybe you're thinking that's a pretty extreme example. Surely I'm in a better spot than the murdering, adulterating, lying King David. But we've got to be careful with that comparison game. Because that's a game where no one wins but Satan, and he's a loser whose fate is also hell. So don't play that game. You know, your, your brokenness might be something totally different. We're going to be doing the, the Christian sexuality workshop in a few weeks, and it's focused on the idea of sexual brokenness. In fact, a variety of different ways um, that we can be broken and have faced sexual sin. 
It doesn't have to be an illicit affair of adultery like David, though perhaps that is for you. It doesn't have to be pornography, though that gets a lot of attention and a spotlight in the Christian world for good reason. It really doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual in nature. Because sin is sin and we're all guilty. It could be a struggle with, with lust that every human being struggles with to one degree or another. And according to Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, that's how things work in his kingdom is that by looking at someone with lust in your heart makes us as guilty as committing adultery with that person. So you're still feeling innocent. It doesn't have to be straight up murder. It doesn't even have to be entertaining thoughts of doing murder to someone. Hatred towards your brother or sister is where it all starts. And Jesus says again in Matthew 5 that your hatred of someone has you just as guilty then as Cain, as Moses, as David, as Paul. Still feeling innocent? Do we even need to get started on covetousness and idolatry? That in our, our great nation, our American nation and culture, these things are are so normalized we don't even recognize them half the time. We can fool others and even ourselves into thinking that we're fine. We're not all bad. We don't need saving. Because we've got our lives together, at least better than a lot of other people. The kindest thing I can say to you, really the only thing I can say to you, is that you're not fine. That you're broken that we all are. And we're not offering a, you know, a better life where if you just hang around long enough and, and listen to enough Bible studies or something, you're going to become a better person, a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent or child or employer, employer, whatever. That's not what we're offering here. What we're offering is the detergent to wash away our sins permanently, the guilt and the shame. And that detergent is actually the blood of Jesus. That he paid the penalty for all our sins, bore the shame, took the guilt. And he offers his broken creation his wholeness. He offers himself. It's the only story I have worth telling. It's what David's story in Psalm 51 points us to. And yeah, as a result of receiving his forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, there'll be a change in your life where you'll want to obey him. You'll, you'll love others well and, and, and all that stuff happens, but that doesn't happen first until you surrender and come broken and humbled before him. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And my question for all of us then is, uh, well, since many of you have done this, many of you are Christians in here, you've had this moment, this experience with God. My question for you is, are you still there? Do you continue to recognize your need for his salvation? Or have you been trusting in something else or someone else to gain his acceptance? And is there a sin that you've been holding on to recently that you need to bring before Jesus, broken again before him, to release that thing that's been keeping you from hearing his voice like you used to? Remember who he is. Remember his story. And we're going to remember in taking communion during these last songs. If you're a Christian in here, and in these last songs, uh, <clears throat> there's these communion elements uh, on these tables throughout the, throughout the church. 
And what these, these are about, there's a little cracker in one and juice on the other side. And what this is about, it represents the body and blood of, of Jesus that was poured out for us. And the reason we take this is to remind ourselves of that. And to remember, yeah, I'm, I'm broken. I've got nothing to offer. Jesus offered it all. And I need to come before him humble, contrite. So we're going to do that in these last three worship songs. Um, we're not going to lead in that together. At any point, you can get up and go get that and bring it back to your seat. And you can have your own little moment with God where you're going to pray to him, remembering what he did for us on the cross. But for some in the room or, or listening online, you've never come before the Lord broken. Not like this. My question is, why not? And I know that there really isn't a good enough reason. But my, my pleading with you would be to please break. Realize you aren't good enough to stand before the Lord, our God, our maker. You've messed up just like the rest of us. Maybe you've been trying to cover it up or scrub it clean or you know, paint over parts of it or accept it like it's, it's not all that bad. Or maybe even you're, just, you're accepting that as just this is just part of who I am. I'm going to own it. None of those things will actually deal with the stain. We've got to go to Jesus. He has the detergent. He will take that sin, all of it, and nail it to the cross. Confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe this? If you do, if you will break, if you will confess and believe that, then you are a Christian. And you can partake of the communion with us. Let's pray. Sing some songs to the Lord. <clears throat> God, you are good. We love you and we thank you for your mercy, your grace towards us. We recognize we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to bring to the table. But Lord, ourselves, just broken meet us here in this moment, Lord, as, as we remember who you are and what you've done for us. If there's someone in this room who has not yet been broken over their sin, would you please meet them in this place in this time? Break them over, over that sin, Lord, and bring them into your kingdom, we pray. As we sing these songs to you, Lord, if there's sin in our lives that we need to confess, that you need to deal with, Lord, help us, break us again anew and bring us before your throne, bring us before the cross where you'll take our guilt and shame away. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. All right, well, the sins of the past, uh, the things you might be caught up in now, all of it's forgiven at the foot of the cross. And so let's bring our sins to him, confess them to him, to each other if need be. And if uh, this is your first time that you've come broken to Jesus and asking for his forgiveness, please tell somebody about that. Maybe that's somebody that brought you or someone you know in here. And if, if, if not, please come and talk to me afterwards or Andrew. Um, we'd love to pray with you and encourage you. Um, and even baptism, baptism's like the next step, the beautiful picture of 
of his washing us clean of our sins that we get to declare to everyone we know that we follow him. Um, that's next week. So awesome timing. <laughs> if that's you, uh, you can just jump right in the water with, a, with us. It'll be great. Um, but we'd love to hear your story and, and pray for you. Uh, <clears throat> and then um, also if, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity or, or if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, uh, and he's placed that, that on your heart saying, you've never been baptized. Uh, you really need to be baptized. You need to consider that. Um, then listen and obey him in that way. Uh, and we'll meet you uh, next Sunday there. And if you want to learn more about uh, becoming one of the mentors at, at uh, one of the schools nearby, you, you can come talk to me about that or send me an email and I'll shoot you the information uh, later today. Um, but yeah, what I want to leave us with is our key verse uh, in Psalm 51. Uh, this, is, this is the heart that we can offer to the Lord. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So let's be broken before him. And let me pray one more time. Father, you are good. You are so good to us. And we just, we thank you that you love us enough to, to show us our brokenness. Help us to love you, Lord, and, and to come broken before you as you've commanded us to. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you. Have a great, great week.